Hello, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to Faith Evangelical Church. We're so happy that you're joining us here, both online and especially in person. Our call to worship today is from Psalm 8, 3 to 6, which reads, When I consider your heavens, the works of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Majesty, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. I know there's so many of us in this fellowship, we have all different types of professions. We all have different types of jobs and careers and things that we do. But the one thing that you were made to do is what you're about to do right now. And that is worship the living God. That's why you were created. You were created to glorify Him, and you were created to worship Him. Now, today is just a time where we all come together, and we do it as a group, which God commands us to do. And He's very pleased when we come together corporately. But we must not let it remain just here. We have to know that everything we do in our life to God is considered a form of worship. And so it's something to think about. The things that we're doing, we are worshiping in everything that we do. The key is who and what is that worship and the object of that worship. So today, our object of worship is Jesus Christ. That's what he's made us to do. He's made us in his image. Now we are to reflect that glory out into the world. And right now, we are to go up and we are to praise him. So join me in prayer, and then we're going to stand and worship through song. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have rectified the problem, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to make us right so that we can go out into the world and make the world right through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know it begins right here and right now with worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And as always, Lord, I pray for your blessing over this. And I pray that all the things that we do and say today would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. All right, let's all stand together and worship the Lord. As we just heard about making Christ our object, let's sing Be Thou My Vision. Number 83 in the hymnal.
uh, Kim has a beautiful uh, tragic story. It's written by Carolina Sandel, who's a Swedish hymn writer. She was born in 1832. And when she was 26 years old, she witnessed her father drown uh, in front of her while they were on a ferry ship. And shortly after that, she wrote this hymn of assurance. So let's, let's sing together day by day.
quickly before we begin the, the main reading, I just have a few verses I wanted to read out of uh, Psalm 43. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a harp, O God, my God. I like that verse. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. So we ask God to send his light and his truth to guide us into a a deeper relationship with him, to walk with him. Um, I think of, uh, and we want to give that on to others. I was thinking back to when I was a child, uh, we'd go to visit my relatives over in Europe, and um, such love from aunts and uncles and everyone, and a lot of times centered around food. Well, I had a, and, and you know, the, the food provided and baked by your aunt or so, like my Aunt Bernadine that my brother Eric here knows, um, such love. Well, I had a dream yesterday. I came home from work. I was really, really tired. I fell asleep. I had a dream that sat at a table with a couple people, and a, I had a tin that I somehow brought from somewhere. Somebody had given it to me with some brownies in it and some really good things. And, and I was about to like give out a few and then take the rest home. And next thing I look over and the table extends a whole lot more and there were like 12 other people there. And I said, oh no, okay. You know, so I had to pass it that way and I knew that they'd all be gone. <laughs> but God's love doesn't run out. So we, we don't have to worry about giving somebody uh, something good because his his storehouse is infinite so um, so today's reading is from Genesis 48 and we have um, Jacob grandpa Jacob who of course he was renamed as Israel also so when you hear it goes back and forth between uh, Jacob and Israel and he had a son named Joseph of course and and Joseph had two sons Manasseh and uh, Ephraim Manasseh was the older one so Normally, the firstborn would get more benefits, you know, passed down or blessing, like we read last week with two others. Um, so, but uh, he, they would, he, typically the grandpa would put his right hand on the older one and pray for him and left hand on the not-so-old one. And uh, so in, in the story here... Uh, Joseph, the father of the two little ones, said, oh, no, you got it all wrong. You crossed them back. So I just wanted to bring that out because it's a little confusing, maybe. Okay, so Genesis 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. 
Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be called yours, and they shall be called by their names, by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan Aram, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. So Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a great people, and and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, by you, Israel will, will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Father, we we come before you. We look to you today. We, We thank you for your almighty power and your your majesty and your perfect holiness and and your goodness towards us and your goodness towards all your creation 
we thank you for your mercy upon us. And we, we thank you that you love us. And though man sinned and we turned from you, you, you took us back and you paid the penalty for that. And you continue to, to work with us and you continue to forgive when we come to you. We thank you for that. We ask you to be at work in our midst today. And, and we lift up um, Ruth Lynn, who's um, uh, working with the Perspectives Ministry in, in teaching about missions. We ask you, Father, to, to help her and to strengthen her and to meet, meet the needs of that organization. And, uh, and we lift up the Catanzaro family as they, <clears throat> as they continue to grieve the loss of Tony's mom. We ask you to work, work in them, and we just thank you for helping them and giving them the, uh, the uh, hope that they need. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. Wow, where did you guys come from? You didn't. You should attend our eleven o'clock service as well. I trust you. It's actually pretty good. So for our second service now, we're going to be in Hebrews, chapter eleven, verses twenty to twenty-two. So we are digging through Hebrews. It seems as if we're crawling through Hebrews, and 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 it's these are uh, little tiny tidbits of of scripture here, but just they're the tip of the iceberg. So. Rather than just go through and skim over them, there's so much meat underneath. So today we're, is sort of a part two from last week. So we have the same three passages. Hebrews 11, chapter 20, I'm sorry, 11, verse 20 is by faith. Again, faith is the theme here. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. And that is what we covered last week. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. This is what we're going to hone in on today. And next week, we'll, we'll cover verse 22, which is, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave order concerning his bones. So today I'll start off with a question. Do you consider yourself to have an experiential relationship with God? Now, I'm not referring to an experience. An experience is a practical contact or a practical observation of something or facts, I guess you could say. And I could certainly experience something or someone through contact or observation, but is this what it means to have an experiential relationship with that someone or something? For instance, something very simple, I'm a dog person, I can experience, let's say, a dog. Okay, I can watch videos of dogs, I could learn about them on the, online, I could go to a dog park, pet dogs. And in doing so, I learn what it means to experience a dog. But is that necessarily experiential? 
However, if I decide to go get my own dog, which I always have had a dog since I, as long as I could remember, I pick it out, I name it, I feed it, I hang out with it, walk it, and all the other things we do with our pets. Now my dog interaction goes from experience to experiential. I not only learn more about dogs, but I discover things about that particular dog beyond anything I would know without having that relationship. <clears throat> I guess I could say I have a relationship with that dog. And that's where the experiential aspect kicks in. It relates to learning or discovering something that's beyond just practical observation. It's beyond just practical contact. Something much, much more meaningful. When we engage in an experiential relationship with something or someone, we develop our knowledge and information about that person. We increase our familiarity and then ultimately our confidence and interest in that someone or something becomes stronger. And there's the bridge. It goes from experience to experiential relationship and ultimately everything about that person or someone or something becomes more real. So what does it mean to have an experiential relationship with God? We can all know about God. <clears throat> Many of you here I know know about doctrine and theology. You read his word, you pray, you come to church. But does this mean we have that experiential relationship with him? <clears throat> now, excuse me, last week we spoke of Isaac. Isaac unwillingly, <clears throat> sorry, unwillingly blessed Jacob over Esau. Isaac had an experiential relationship with God ultimately, but it seemed at times very difficult for him and very much against what his intentions, intentions were. So it was a grind for Isaac. And that leads us to today's text, speaking about Isaac's son, Jacob. And that's our focal point today. Now, I believe this is a much different story than what we did talk about last week. You know, Jacob, he had many lessons. Did he learn his lesson? Did he experience God beyond just that observation or contact? Or did he have a continued misguided faith, as we read about last week? Did it become experiential? Did it cause him to willingly submit to God's will, particularly as it pertains to the blessing that he gave by faith to Ephraim and Manasseh? And, of course, Joseph as well. And that's what I'd like to look into. So, first of all, who was Jacob? Now, again, he's Isaac's son, but he was the younger of the two twins. His name means supplanter or deceiver, or in the modern vernacular, then heel catcher. <clears throat> he stole his brother's Esau's blessing right from under his nose. He did it not necessarily through outward, sort of direct manipulation. He was very clever and sneaky. Again, his name being Deceiver. 
He disguised himself as Esau, and he stole the blessing that belonged to Esau right under his old father's nose. And he didn't do it alone. He did it with the help of his mother. The blessing should have went to the older, but now through Jacob's line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now after this, after he did this deceptive thing, Esau, remember, he was a man of the field. He was probably a rough and tough guy. Of course, you know, he was a hairy man. Of course, you don't want to wrangle with a hairy man. He knew that Isaac was after to kill him. He wanted him dead. He said, as soon as my father dies, I'm going after him. So his father Isaac sent him away. He said, go to the land of your uncle. Take a wife amongst his people, amongst your own people, and, and stay there until things cool off. And if you're familiar with the story, he meets Rachel, the daughter of Laban, who was Jacob's mother's brother, Rebecca's brother, his aunt. Jacob himself at that point now experiences the trickery of someone else. Because remember, he wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban said, well, you have to work for her for seven years. But after the seventh year, when it came time for the marriage, he snuck Leah into the tent. And he ended up marrying Leah instead. And then he had to work another seven years for Rachel. So he took them both as a wife. Out of Rachel and Leah and two of their handmaids came the 12 sons of Jacob, or as we like to refer to it, the nation Israel. Again, we talked about, Hubert mentioned it, that Jacob's name would eventually be changed to Israel by God. Unlike Isaac and Abraham, Jacob's life started out on the run. He was on the run from Laban. He was on the run from Esau. He was in fear of his life. But during this time of running and experiencing different tests and trials, his life began to change. He started getting a developed faith. His faith started to take shape. And as we know, this was preparation for some major tests which lied ahead. During each trial, Jacob encountered God. He did so in a, such a special way that Jacob was actually sustained through this, and as we see, his faith grew stronger and stronger. Now, the first experiential encounter that Jacob had with the Lord, believe it or not, was in a dream. It's not, not quite like Hubert's dream, but it was in a dream. It was in Genesis 28. He was lonely. He had just left his family. He was in fear of his brother's threat against his life. He was in a desperate time. And he had nothing but the ground and a stone to lay his head upon. And he went to sleep. Now, in this dream, God appears to him on top of a ladder. This ladder was stretching down from heaven into the earth. And he saw vividly the Lord standing on top of that, of that whole picture at the top of the ladder. And the Lord says to him in Genesis 28, 13 to 15, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, 
I will give it to you and your descendants. And in verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, anticipating the journey that he was going to take outside of the boundaries of that land. God was encouraging him through this encounter, take heart, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back. I will not leave you until I've done all that I have promised you. Now, after this encounter, this is the first major encounter he had with the Lord. He awoke early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and he had set it up as a pillar and poured it, poured oil on top of it. And he named that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Jacob's faith grew, but notice it grew through the encounter, but then through action that was fueled by faith that happened through that encounter. God is always the initiator of our faith. It says in Ephesians, right? The husband is like Christ in Ephesians 5. He lays his life down for his wife. He's the initiator. And then the wife, the church, responds in love. And so it's the same thing here with our faith. God initiates your faith and then requires us to take action and activate it. And I believe that was just one aspect of what he did. And then Jacob makes this emphatic statement of faith. <clears throat> now, this is an, actually not a negotiation here, because that's what it sort of seems like. Genesis 28, 20 to 22. Right after this, Jacob makes a vow. If God be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, I'll return to my father's house in safety then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. Now you can see how this reverberates all through the New Testament and reverberates even back to the old, through the old. It will be God's house and all that I give you, I will surely give you ten. So he's not saying, if God will be with me, then maybe I'll do it. No, he's saying, if God's going to be with me and he's going to keep me on this journey, man, am I going to serve him? Man, am I going to be all right? So it was an absolute emphatic statement of faith with his mouth and the action of faith that he did with the stone. Now, shortly after that, he has another encounter with God. Him and Rachel and Leah were traveling with their family and their livestock, and he knew he had to pass through the country of Edom, which was Esau's country, the land of his brother. He was terrified. But what does God do? God gives him a glimpse as he's going of the protection that he gives to all of his people. As he went on his way, he experienced God's promise to take care of him and fight his battles. In Genesis 32, 1-2, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw this, this is God's camp. God continues to work with our faith, continues to grow it. Be faithful with the little, he gives us more. His strength is, his faith is strengthened. He sends messengers now, instead of running, he sends messengers ahead, giving gifts to Esau to try to meet him and appease him before he comes. See, this is going to be great, the Lord is with me. 
But then he learns after his servants met Esau that Esau was coming with 400 men. See, it's, it's usually after the blessing comes the test, right? When you get blessed, you're going to get tested. Remember that. So when it happens, you're getting tested all the time. And why I say that is because when we get blessed, we automatically think, oh, this is good. I'm going to be testless now. No. You're getting stronger and stronger. You're in a war, people. You're in a battle if you are in the battle. So he was greatly afraid. He cries out to the Lord in Genesis 32, 9 to 12. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac. Oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you've shown to your servant. And then in verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. Now, this was a man who had knowledge, but more than that, more than just experience, he had a relationship with the person, God, who he was talking to. He trusted him. And you could see his faith exponentially grows through God working in and with him. And then that same night, Jacob is left alone. God answers his prayer and displays a perfect example of how this experiential relationship with God will develop, not just with Jacob, but with you as well. Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with Jacob. Notice, it wasn't Jacob wrestling with the man. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. And he saw that he had not prevailed against him. This is the man that was wrestling with him. Jacob was apparently a strong guy. Okay, he did have some of his brother's genetics. But so what happened was, was the Lord touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated. God used a supernatural touch. Now again, obviously, he, God was, this is no real matchup here. All right, you wouldn't pay for this pay-per-view. Believe me. <laughs> You'd be like, I know what's going to happen. But God, again, he's, he's there on our level. He's present. He's engaging with us. He's wrestling with us. He said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. <clears throat> he said, I will. And then Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, deceiver. And he said, well, your name shall no longer be deceiver. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then he names him Israel. And he blesses him. Now God had to, and listen here, through this experiential encounter with Jacob, he had to wrestle the man out of him. He had to wrestle the man out of him. And this applies, obviously, when I say man, I mean man and woman, okay? He has to wrestle the flesh out of his people. <clears throat> and he does that sometimes to the point of taking that hip bone and messing with it or taking something away that maybe is detrimental to you to let you know who it is that you're wrestling with. But rest assured, you are going to come out a new person with a new name. 
Now again, shortly after this, the Lord speaks to him, go back to Bethel and live there. Jacob then builds an altar to God, again, taking action on his faith. He again, he gives him this this promise, this reiteration of the promise of the land and kings coming from his seed. And again, the name changed to Israel. And again, Israel doesn't mean man prevails. The word Israel means what? God prevails. So Jacob is, turns in and completes that transformation. Now notice, the change didn't take place by finding like the faith button on Jacob, right? The hit wasn't the button. That had nothing to do with it. The change took place way back during those initial times where he has met the Lord and he trusted the Lord during fearful times, during pain, during suffering, after he had sinned against God. So much so that, as he thought, he changed the whole course of human history by that lie with a great picture of how God uses evil for his own glory. The deception of Jacob and Rebekah, the wrong intentions of Isaac, but yet still his will will be done. And so we see through this series of experiential encounters and interaction that God not only fully brought forth his decree for this promised seed to come forth, but he is working and establishing the faith of Jacob as well. And we should not expect anything less. This is, a, like I mentioned before, this is a war that you have enlisted in as a Christian. And the war that you are in is not going to be necessarily, they're not going to force you to the front lines on the battlefield. You're, God isn't a tyrant general that's going to come and jump in your face and say, you better get out there and fight. No, Jesus did that for us. He laid down his life. However, now, what, where, is the, where is that thermometer? That is in your passion for God, your willingness to go out, your willingness to suffer for the Lord. And our text reads, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. You see, this faith of this blessing, which we're going to talk about how this all pans out, It did not appear instantly. So don't go comparing yourself to Jacob or to Israel's faith or really to anyone. You need to go to the lesson behind it. Faith comes out of adversity and testing. It's initially given to us by God as salvation, but then it must be that seed must be broken and it must fall to the ground and die. Otherwise it abides not and will not bear fruit. And don't think these are cookie-cutter instances. Don't go home tonight and, and tell me tomorrow that you had some sort of dream uh, about God coming to you. And, 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 and listen, I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's probably something you ate the night before. What we must do is we must go to God's Word and rest on His promises there and then engage with the action that we have been talking about. God has a unique work to be done with you. Completely different than any other. As different as your DNA is than everyone else, that's the different work that God has to do with you than everyone else. So I don't know how God's going to work with you, but I can tell you right now, 
He is. He's working it with you right now in the situation that you're in. Whatever that may be. You may be in the, in the dark pit or you may be up on the mountaintop. He's working in and through. Now, Jacob was about to face his toughest encounter with God ever. As we mentioned, Jacob married both Leah and Rachel. Leah was fruitful, but Rachel was barren. After Leah had several boys, God opens up Rachel's womb and her firstborn natural son came to be, and that is Joseph. She did give birth again, but she died during childbirth as she bore her second son, excuse me, Benjamin. Now, Jacob, he had a favorite, and that was Joseph. He made him, as we all know, if you've watched all the shows, there's probably been more movies on this guy than any other Christian faith-based film, right? You got to get all those out of your head. And now it's hard to unlearn some of those Hollywood productions. So we know he made him a special, colorful coat. He also kept them from working in the fields. But one day Jacob asked his son Joseph to go out into the fields and check on his brothers. And as he approached his brothers, they saw him from a distance. And immediately they plotted to take his life. Reason being, jealousy. Now, why were they jealous? Well, Joseph told of two dreams when he was 17 years old. One of which had his brothers bowing down to him in honorable worship. And the second, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. Now, the writing was on the wall. They knew what what his dream was saying, or at least what they thought he was lying about and trying to intend in this uh, description of his dreams. They burned with anger against him, and they wanted to kill him from that very day. So when they saw him coming from a distance, they plotted, they got him, they threw him into a well to die on his own. Only until a group of Midianite traders came by, and then his brothers, being evil to the core, decided there's no profit in killing him, let's make some money out of this. So they took him out of the dry well, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt instead. Now when the brothers arrived home, They took pieces of Joseph's coat, they tore it up, they soaked it in goat blood, and they showed their poor old father. Now by this time, Rachel had died, so you can imagine the pain and the sting of this when he heard the news and saw the blood that his son Joseph was torn apart by beasts. He mourned many days, and all this because his sons, Israel, The sons of Israel lied to him. And again, people, this too is a tool that God uses to develop our experiential relationship with him. That tool is suffering, loss, and absence. Hello? Yes, hold on one second. God hadn't appeared either to Jacob for some time at this point. So sometimes absence is a tool to grow our faith. The absence 
that we sense or feel, which is usually because of our sin, but other times it's God just taking a step back to give us the test. You know, feeling like God isn't there. Feeling God forsaken. And that's a bad place to be because our flesh automatically starts, what did I do wrong? I haven't been reading, I haven't been praying, I haven't been doing that. And then you just get into this tailspin and, and you never get back to really what the core is, is be content, wait. It's God, he's with you, he's there, he's causing it, he's going to bring it to pass and he's going to take you through it. Now, after Joseph had been in Egypt for se- several years, God showed his favor toward him. Now, it wasn't a cakewalk for Joseph. He suffered, but he stayed faithful to God. He fled the sexual attempts by Potiphar's wife, but even ended up being blamed as the aggressor. So he got thrown into the dungeon. All the while, the brothers were living with this guilt, and Jacob, mourning, thinking his firstborn son with Rachel, had died. God gave Joseph the gift of prophecy, impressing Pharaoh so much with the interpretation of his dream and predicting the coming famine that he put Joseph in charge of the entire nation, second only to himself. After that, God blesses Joseph with Ephraim and Manasseh, two sons. The famine hit so hard that Jacob and his family back in Canaan were starving. Jacob says, what are you doing looking at each other? Go get us some food. Go down to Egypt and trade and bring food back lest we die. So they go to Egypt and they become face to face with their brother, Joseph. Joseph hid his identity, but he knew his brothers. And as we all know the story, he was able not only to provide for his brothers, but also for his entire family and reunited himself with his father, bringing the whole tribe to Egypt at the time, which was a total of only 70. We'll get more into that next week. Of course, time doesn't permit me to give you all the details of this encounter, but one key, one point I want you to see of God, and this is bringing us back to Jacob, is God was faithful to Jacob. And not only sustaining him through the loss of the supposed loss of his child with Rachel, his firstborn, but also bringing that child back to life. A perfect picture of what God does to us as we are dead in our sins. Brings us to life and uses that situation, that Joseph situation, as it said, to preserve the life of many. And that's what God is in the business of doing. God is a loving God. God gives the commandment, thou shall not murder. But the, other, the opposite of that is, you shall preserve life. You shall be out there preserving life. We're to protect life. And why? Because that's God's character. The commandments are an expression of his character. They're not some rules that he has to follow. They're an expression of his character. And God uses all things, including evil, to do good. And in this case, to preserve the life of many. So here we have Jacob's faith. And this is where the faith comes in to bring us to this text that we're talking about. The blessing of Joseph's two sons. It's an amazing instance of faith on Jacob's part. And also on God's part in his faithfulness to his redeemed people. 
Now, what's often missed about this blessing is something that Hubert totally took the thunder out of my sermon by explaining it before he read the Old Testament passage. But the one thing about this, and I'm just joking with you, Hubert. He said that the, he says, but the one thing that we miss is that before Jacob blessed all of his other sons, all of the, even his firstborn, Reuben, all them, he, before he blesses all them in Genesis 49, he first blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, then Joseph himself, his firstborn with Rachel in Genesis 48. So this blessing comes before the blessings that he gives in Genesis 49. Again, what we see is another disordered blessing. And first we see Jacob get the blessing over Esau from deception. Now we see Jacob prophetically and providentially blessing Joseph's sons first, meaning Jacob was not only treating Joseph, but both of his sons as and in the position of firstborn. Now you think, well, wait a second. Is this the seed? How the seed comes? Like Jesus came from the line of Judah. Well, listen on. So as again, we we saw Jacob does the crisscross applesauce. He blesses the younger over the older. He didn't question it. He, you know, Joseph said, oh no, God, you're doing it. Or uh, Jacob, you're doing it. Father, you're doing it the wrong way. No, he knew that is what God wanted. But why and how did he get that faith? How did he know that? You see, it wasn't just the physical encounters that he had with God necessarily. It was also the spiritual encounter that he had with the Lord. See, you remember Joseph's two dreams, right? We know the first dream in Genesis 37, 6 to 8, when he said to his brothers, Hey, listen to this dream which I just had. For behold, there were, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams. They hated him because his father loved him most, but these dreams really put the icing on the cake. Now that was a prophecy that happened, right? How did it happen? Well, all his brothers came, and you'll see it in the text. They, he bow, they bowed down to him in Egypt. And Joseph was the ruler. But listen to the second dream. This is in just shortly after in Genesis 37, 9 to 11. Now he still had another dream. And he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers. And his father, Jacob, rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous. And here's that spiritual encounter. But his father kept the saying in mind. His father kept that saying. It's something different about this dream. First of all, Rachel had already passed. How could she bow down to them? See, Joseph was connecting the dots. It was never fulfilled in Jacob's time or Joseph's time. You see, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars didn't actually represent his 11 brothers, uh, 11 brothers bowing down to him. 
And the sun and the moon didn't really mean his father and mother would bow down to him. Again, that never happened. So what did it mean? Well, the sun, the moon, and the stars in Scripture always represents rule, authority, government, and or kingship. So in that context, the 11 stars, the sun and the moon, all represent the sons of Israel. The 11 stars represent Joseph's brothers. The sun and the moon, the position of the firstborn. Altogether, they symbolize the glory of the entire elect of God, the true Israel. Now, though the text says they were bowing down to Joseph, again, this had never happened. But what this text symbolizes is the bowing down to the person, the person who Joseph and his sons typify. And that is the true king, the one who has rule and authority and who holds the government on his shoulders. You know, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. See, Joseph and his sons are the type or a type of Christ. The sun, the moons, and the stars are the type of the true Israel or the true church bowing down, not to Joseph, but to Christ, who Joseph typifies. Jacob remembered this spiritual encounter, and he knew this was why his blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh were considered an act of faith for things to come. Ephraim is referred to throughout Scripture as northern Israel. He got the blessing. He got the spiritual blessing. What we're seeing here is Joseph and his brothers being put as that spiritual firstborn. And we know that those that are from Israel, from Jacob, are not all truly from Israel. It's the spiritual Israel that are the children of God. And this is why Jacob blesses Joseph's sons and made them his own. Not only was Joseph his firstborn with Rachel, but he put them in front of his biological firstborn and secondborn, Reuben and Simon. Now, I can't get into it now, but Reuben and Simon defiled their blessing. Reuben Reuben slept with his father's concubine, and Simeon had all sorts of blood on his hands. So they were replaced not only figuratively, but also literally as well. And I wish I had time to go through the scriptures where it talks about the the preeminence of Joseph and his sons as the ones who are carrying forth that spiritual seed. You see, it's Jesus is from the physical genealogy or genealogical line of Judah, but he is from the spiritual seed of Jacob, and he typifies and is the antitype, I should say, of Joseph. And his sons. Joseph was a type of Christ and Jacob, seeing Christ in Joseph as the ultimate deliverer and preserver of life and the seed of the promise. He believed that the whole people of God, the church, one day bow down to the promised one. So Jacob, in faith, gives the blessing and gives the spiritual inheritance on to Joseph and his sons. I encourage you to read through Genesis 27 to 50. 
You can see all of this and how this unfolds and plays out. You can see more how Jacob's faith was developed. Not just through rote rituals, but through seeking the face of the living God time and time again through his whole life. It's important to see that God didn't do this to Jacob and Joseph. He did it with Jacob and Joseph. God is not going to do things to you. He desires to go through things with you. And there is the key of that experiential relationship. Whether we kick and scream when those things happen and we depart from God and we try to hide our face from Him and we go back to our old ways. God never leaves you, but you're sort of in a pit stop. God is waiting to bring you back into the race so He can get into that vehicle and go with you. And I'm talking again, this experiential relationship. It's, it's something beyond salvation. It's manifested through and can only come by hands-on experience. Discovering God beyond just works of devotion or observing facts or studying theology or doctrine, all those things are very important. But unless you have been Unless you have stepped out and told the Lord in complete surrender, I'm ready, Lord. I'm done with all of the things my way. I'm done trying to fulfill this Christian life in how I think it's supposed to be. And you completely 100% surrender. And at that point, you get the full benefits of being a new creature. That's when there's the, the, the floodgate is open. That's when God starts to lead you, move you. Start, things start to happen to you. And all of a sudden, you desire God more and more and more, whether it's good or bad. you just like, oh, I just want the Lord, whatever it is. That's what Paul means when he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That doesn't just mean when I, you know, I'm content with the money that I have, so I'm God. No, that means in all aspects. I'll end with this uh, scripture, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. So we must, people, we must do like Jacob. We have to turn into Israel. We have to turn from deceiver to the one who acknowledges that God prevails. A perfect picture of the old being done and the new coming in. And as we do this, watch and see God develop and use your faith and watch it reverberate like it did with Jacob throughout history. Father, thank you for this example of Jacob and Joseph. And Lord, may it point us more to the amazing wisdom, not only of your word, but in what you've done in Jesus Christ, Lord. From the very first page of your word and to the very last page, we see him. Cause us to see him, Lord. Allow, give us what we need, Father, to be able to say once and for all that we are no longer going to be Jacob. Make us into that new creature. You know what, you know what needs to change, Lord. Please do it. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Excuse me. Amen. Please stand and sing with us number five.